0: You're listening to Scalé Sisters, episode number 62. Welcome to Scalé Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Galay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandy Venzel. You can find me at Afterthoughts. That's where you'll find my blog posts on educational philosophy and such, as well as my Charlotte Mason study guides and workshops. You can hear more from me on my other podcast, Aftercast. My co-hosts today are Pam Barnhill and Misty Winkler. Pam is a speaker, podcaster, blogger at pambarnhill.com, and author of two fabulous books, Better Together, and the newly released Plan Your Year. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and too many projects. With her blog, podcast, and membership, she helps you organize your attitude so you can organize your life. Find her over at simplyconvivial.com. We are thrilled to have Robbie Jane back on the show today. Obviously, Robbie is co author of the fabulous book, The Liberal Arts Tradition. But let me tell you a little more about him. Robbie graduated from Davidson College, received an MA from Reformed Theological Seminary, and later earned a graduate certificate in mathematics from the University of Central Florida. He began teaching calculus and physics at the Geneva School in 2003 where he has developed an integrated double-period class called the Scientific Revolution. In this class, the students read primary sources like Galileo and Newton in order to recapitulate the narrative of discovery while preserving the mathematical and scientific rigor expected of a college-level treatment. He has given over 100 talks and workshops throughout the country and overseas on topics related to education, theology, mathematics, and science. He has two boys, Judah and Xavier, and is married to Kelly Ann, whom he met in Japan. Quick reminder: there is, as always, a Scolae sheet designed to help you engage with this episode's content and apply the new ideas right away. Go to today's show notes at slash ss 62 to get your copy. In today's episode, we get some of the background on the new edition of the liberal arts tradition. After this, we dive deeply into the curriculum section from the new edition and talk about the fine arts, the servile arts, and of course, the liberal arts. You're going to love hearing Robbie's thoughts. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. Let's start off with our Scollet Everyday. Pam, I like your title, so I'm going to have you start us off if you don't mind. <laughs>
1: Oh, okay. I will. I will do that. Um, so I am reading for the very first time. <gasps> what? I know, right? How um, are we your friend? <laughs> I, you know, somebody has to come along and, and be the every man in this group. And that is me. <laughs> um, I'm reading the Hobbit. Yay. And so, Ravi, there you go. I read your book before I read The Hobbit. <laughs>
2: wow. <laughs> That's uh,
1: you, Those are like bragging rights right there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, so, yeah, I'm it. I'm reading it for my class with um, Angelina, and uh, I am enjoying it way more than I thought I would. So <laughs> I'm so glad you like it. I've heard in the past from other people that they didn't care for the Hobbit. I'm like, well, maybe I won't like the Hobbit. And I I don't know. It's just, I've seen all the Lord of the Ring movies with my husband Mm. um, because he was a huge fan. And, um, and then Olivia has actually read more than I have of um, Tolkien. And uh, so anyway, I had to read it for class and fantasy is just not my genre. And so I picked it up and I'm actually really enjoying it. So there you go. I feel like the Hobbit
0: has more of a fairy tale feel. so I feel like for yes. some people who don't really like fantasy but will do fairy tales, they're willing to read The Hobbit in a way they're not really re- willing to read "The Lord of the Rings." I don't know if that's true for you, but yeah, makes just sense.: an Observation.
1: I, I found it very enjoyable, and I may go on to fellowship after this one, so I oh, mean, I, I have this big, you know, only five books going right now that have to be read by certain dates but yeah i i'm enjoying myself all right how far are you um chapter 5 or 6 okay it's so good i'm excited for you
3: there's an audio version too of the whole trilogy Yeah.
1: And we have, we have a couple of different audio versions because, you know, Olivia loves to consume audio. And so I I think we have two audio versions. We have a dramatized, which Mm -hmm. is abridged, and then we have uh, just a regular audio version. So um, I may actually do that. We're going on a trip this weekend and I may actually throw my earbuds in at some point and listen to some of it too. Cool. Wow. All right.
3: Well, Misty, what do you got? I realize that I don't, think I think we we need to start a resource document or something. I don't think I've ever mentioned this one, <laughs> <laughs> But I am reading the Matthew Henry commentary on the entire mm. Bible. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I mentioned it last year at The Retreat, so I don't think I mentioned it on the podcast that I was starting it because we were sharing, you know, things that we read just in tiny bits. And Mm -hmm. the Matthew Henry commentary, I have it in one volume. And so it's one of those really gigantic books that has microscopic print. (laughs) Oh, I hate those. (laughs) Read with magnifying glass. I actually do. It makes me feel really old. (laughs) (laughs) So I started this a year ago uh, in the summer and Um, I had a plan. I was going to read like half a page or so every day. And I would alternate Old Testament and New Testament books Hmm. was my plan. But I'm still in the Old Testament book that I started in. (laughs) (laughs) I picked Job to start with. And I'm about 20, I think I've read 20 pages in a year of Matthew Henry. And so it's a tale of perseverance. I'm I'm still sticking (laughs) with that plan. And my goal is to read the whole thing before I'm 50. So that gives me like 13 years. So (laughs) I think I can do it. (laughs) But needless to say, it hasn't been every day. (laughs) What's amazing is that somebody wrote that much. I know. It's true. I mean, because
0: it's hard to read that much, but somebody wrote that much. That just is amazing to
3: me. It's really good. I, I like it because it's really solid. But also very pastoral. It's not super academic or getting into the Greek or the Hebrew or the anything. It's very pastoral, so it's a great read along with, you know, morning devotion type reading. Uh, Ravi, would you like to go?
2: Sure. I'm reading a book that I stole from a coworker, and it's called *The Flame Imperishable: The Metaphysics of Fairy*. Ooh. Oh, wow. A- Really cool. Um, yeah, my friend Robbie Andreessen, is another science teacher at Geneva. Was uh, reading it. I, where did you get this book, Robbie? Uh, you know, it tells you something about um, how fun some of my colleagues are. Um, that the biology teacher is reading about the metaphysics. Yeah. Of theory. He just found it on Amazon, but it is. Um, it really digs in deep. It's a, it's just released, I think, in the past year about uh, Tolkien's understanding. Of Christian metaphysics, and it's profound. It's really, really good. And uh, part of it is understanding the way Tolkien thinks of creatures like elves and dwarves and what they're up to and um, how they fit in with kind of his Christian imagination. And part of the argument of the author is that uh, that he actually that Tolkien really really has a fairly um, Orthodox Christian metaphysics that he borrows from Thomas Aquinas. Hmm. So it's fascinating, I, I think, um, and really profound. You've learned a lot about both Aquinas and metaphysics as well as Tolkien by reading it. And it's just kind of fun and crazy. So
0: I love the title alone. I mean, goodness, wow. Okay, I, I got to ask you though have you ever read Peter Kreff's book? On Tolkien he has the philosophy of Tolkien
2: no I haven't yeah on the shoulder is that on the shoulders of hobbits or is that no it's
0: just it's just I mean he might he might have written other things on and he probably has because he's a big Tolkien fan but that is his metaphysics of Tolkien book but it's I'm look so I'm (laughs) of course I looked it up on Amazon (laughs) so it looks like your book has 300 pages and Kreft's book is I mean one hundred page. It's pretty small. It's, it's a dominion. You <laughs> can say everything in like yes, a third of the space. Exactly. He's exactly. Master of concision. It's it's super good. But um, I'm trying to figure out. So if you haven't read them both, you wouldn't be able to tell me. i was trying no, to figure out should I, oh, should I I own I both of them. To,
2: <laughs> I do need to get uh, Chris's book. Uh, he's written so many things, and I um, haven't gotten to go through as much of his corpus as I'd like. So it's a great. I, idea. I
0: like it because he um. He has it organized more like an academic philosophy book. So it has easily referenced numbers. Like you read 2.1, 2.2. It kind of almost reminds me of the Summa. Like it's very logically organized and follows a little, I don't know. He's got a very particular outline he's going through and everything, but he didn't name it the flame imperishable. I'm getting
2: my head turned (laughs) (laughs) by the title. (laughs)
0: So fun. So you're telling me there's two people named Ravi at your
2: school? <laughs> no, but you know we often still get confused. His name is actually Robbie with a B, R-O-B-B-I-E.
0: Oh, Robbie. <laughs> okay. So I was like, "How did that happen?" <laughs>
2: no, I know.
0: Yeah. I know it's not that uncommon of a name, but still.
2: <laughs> right. Um,
0: <laughs> all right. Well, mine. Actually, I debated over whether to put this here because I'm kind of struggling with this book, but I'm reading with my high school senior, The Fatal Conceit by F.A. Hayek. Fun, huh? <laughs> and and it, I mean, I, I love economics books. I really do. But Hayek is a struggle for me because he is so, even though I tend to agree with him most of the time, he is so secular evolutionist that it drives me a bit. Batty at times hmm. because it's, it's sort of like reading one of those diet books where they're like, paleo man was like this <laughs> for everything. It kind of feels like that. Like everything comes back to evolution. And it's a little bit he, like, he doesn't have another angle on this, but it's interesting because, and I actually, I actually think he has a point he's defending tradition because at the time that he's writing and, you know, writing against people like Keynes or I well, that group of people were trying to throw out tradition. Mm-hmm. Progressive. And so he's trying to defend tradition. And his argument for tradition is very interesting because he sees tradition as, and I don't necessarily disagree with this, as basically survival of the fittest, right? These are the things that help us survive. Hmm. And so what's, what we have left in culture is what remains after everything else that doesn't work has been sifted out. So the idea that we're going to dispense with all of this doesn't make a lot of sense if you think of it from that perspective, because these would be the time tested things. So I don't know what I expected from this book. I had only, for some reason I had read the first chapter. I was probably pregnant because this is what I did when I was pregnant years ago. I would start a book and then realized that my brain wasn't capable <laughs> while pregnant and I'd put it down and forget about it. So I, I have like lots of underlining in the first chapter, but I know I never read the rest of the books. I'm not sure exactly what happened. Um, there's books like that all over our house though. And they're all from the same era. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, so we're reading it now and I did not remember that it was an argument for tradition. Maybe I just hadn't read enough of it, but it, it, it really is very interesting. And, um, and I think it's been good for my high schooler to read someone who is coming to similar conclusions that he probably has reached on his own, but from a secular perspective and kind of getting his mind around the secular line of reasoning. So I think it's been good for him.
2: It's interesting. Have you guys read Peeper's book on tradition?
0: No. What is it called?
2: I forget. I think I've got it over there in the corner, though. See. And then there's the other one. Yaroslav Pelikan wrote a book on tradition. But I've been trying to go through both of them. I haven't got too far. Yeah, it, the book um, the book, the book, by Joseph Pieper is Tradition. That's all. That's what I forgot.
0: <laughs> what an amazing name.
2: <laughs> uh, I think Pelicans is the same, actually, or something similar. But yeah, it's, it's so important. That's cool that I didn't know that, that Hayek had written a book about tradition.
0: Well, and the thing is, I... I'm I'm trying to figure out: Is the book really about tradition, or is he just kind of mired in this for a few chapters? Like I I don't know if we've read enough of it for me to know. Because I thought I had read um, Thomas Soul quoting extensively from Hayek, and I thought the fatal conceit was actually the idea that we know enough that we could have central planning be successful. I thought that that was what the fatal conceit was supposed to be, and that is the title of the book. But maybe it's just that central planning involves throwing out all of tradition because we know better. So maybe it's wrapped up in that and I just am not seeing the connection yet. So I don't know that the whole book is about tradition, but we're definitely on at least our third chapter or half chapter of, <laughs> of talking about tradition. So don't
2: well, make sense though. I mean, I, I can see your interpretation. Yeah. Where you might be going.
0: We'll have to see where it goes. But it's been really fun to have a senior this year and be reading the kinds of books with him that I read with my dad when I was his age. So not all of them are exactly the same, but my dad was a stockbroker and didn't like the quality of economics education at the local high school. So first he threw a fit and then he bought a bunch of books and made me read them. <laughs> and So, <laughs> so, and so I, I didn't throw any fits because I'm a homeschooler and I have only myself to blame, but <laughs> We definitely have been reading the same kinds of things that I had to read way back when. So it's been fun. Hmm.
2: Did you guys, uh, did you, have you come across the book, The, the End of Economic Man? No. no.
0: You're full of, okay, I'm writing this one down too. Here, I'm just typing it all in. Well,
2: I think that's, I mean, it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure that's Peter Drucker. And the reason why I brought it up is I think it's not too long after Hayek's writing. So, I mean, Drucker's just, he's so interesting. For many reasons, but I was wondering if that might have been a book that your dad had passed along. It's, I you know, now that I think about it, is I he is maybe twenty or thirty years after. Hmm. I think probably from the fifties, end of economic man.
0: He made me read Hayek, but he made me read Road to Serfdom, not Fatal Conceit. So I hadn't read that as a kid. And biographies <laughs> of like famous business people. Anyway. Not to go back, not to rehash the trauma of my senior year of high school. Uh, <laughs> or, the, or the one
1: that you're inflicting.
0: That's, that's great,
2: though. That's very, how about
0: that? <laughs> I always say I was homeschooled at the dinner table after school. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So let's uh, transition to our topical discussion, which is, I mean, we really, we really want to dig into your curriculum section, Robbie. but first we want to ask you about the new book because we're so excited about it. It's out now, right? It's, I think it's out for
2: pre-order. I don't it's think it's they're out shipping pre- yet.
0: Okay, they're not. All right. It probably so will maybe by the time this airs. By the time it airs, probably yeah, people can get it. Probably will. So you've got edition two of the liberal arts tradition coming out in November and we've got to know, how did you end up doing a second edition? Did you get complaints? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, there it's was good. this one complaint from this Bensol woman about <laughs> <this, laughs> <this laughs> an astronomy article. Oh, no. I'm never
0: going to live that down. No. <laughs> um, but, I, uh, I, for the record, I loved your first version,
2: your first edition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brandy, that was unfair. <laughs> no, um, yeah, everything you said was, was all very, uh, very generous, and um, I've learned a lot from your reading of the book um, and even that article, I could understand your point of view. I, I concluded, I hate to admit it, but I couldn't address your concerns in the rewrite for astronomy. The, um, but that doesn't mean that I don't seek to address them elsewhere. We're working on working on something right. else that I think will, that you'll really like eventually um, All right. comes out that will address those. But uh, it wasn't actually so much complaints as it was, Things that we knew that were left undone uh, from the first mm. edition. It's kind of hard also to do a co-authorship mm. because there's all kinds of reasons about that are just who's going to write what and you know how much. Uh, how do you balance ideas? How are ideas growing? And um, mm. so one thing, for example, that happened is Kevin. He was in the middle of his doctoral program where he was doing his doctorate of liberal studies, and I don't think that. When we had first penned the articles, he was kind of at the final place that he ended up after he finished his studies uh, hmm. regarding the liberal arts of language. You know, I think he wanted to go back, and he wanted to he wanted to make them more really robust. Hmm. That was good. I think that I think that really helps the book. Uh, and then a couple other things that became important for us. One is we're really confronted by our time with the Chinese church, and the Christian classical schools that have been started in China which are just numerous now and you know hundreds hundreds of educators in China are pursuing are following Christian classical education
0: oh wow i did not know this
2: oh yeah and there're probably at least 20, uh, 20 to 50 schools around the country hmm. it's it's really quite extraordinary some very influential pastors got behind it, um, wrote a book about Christian classical education and really had convinced large, large I mean, thousands of people that this is the way to go. Hmm. So, um, and that was, I think, before I had met any of these guys, um, it was not due to anything, any of my influence or our influence. Um, it was something they'd kind of come to on their own for, in some ways, some very, reasons very internal to, you know, the theological maturity um, hmm. Christians in China. But the point is that once we started to interact with them, um, we, I think we were really puzzled by why they would be so interested in classical education, because I think a lot of times Christian classical education is expressed as Western Christian education. right? And so why are they interested in a kind of education that's Western? Shouldn't they be interested in the Chinese kind of education? Once we started to speak with them at length, we realized that they're deeply Christian, these people, and a lot of them have seminary education. Some of them have been professors at universities of law and philosophy. Uh, One of them has written on the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen and how important they are for moral formation of children. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) These are are bright people, you know, and um, they get uh, a lot of things that we don't get in the West. And They understand that a lot of education is propaganda, you know, and they experience Mm -hmm. it in their public school system education as propaganda and so they recognize the power of education for world formation and when they are saying where do you find that they say well there was a time when the church really had a way of doing education for world formation." and mm. i think that the people that are close to what doing that are the christian classical educators wow so that's why they're interested in it and the same reasons why we're interested in it and it doesn't really have so much to do with the west what it has to do with is the church mm. and they understand themselves as being grafted in to, to Abraham um, through Christ, just like we are. So, if I name my son Judah and one of them names their sons, you know, Asa or something like that, it's because they have as much right to this Christian tradition as we do. Hmm. And so, I don't think it's so much about they appreciate Western culture in as much as Western culture has been the locus of a lot of God's redemptive work in culture. Over the past 2,000 years. Even so, all of England is not Greece, you know, or England hmm. is not Jerusalem. And so, Germany is not Roman. Why is it that the Germans and all these people decided to have this continuity? A lot of it has to do with kind of receiving the cultural inheritance of the church. So, that's, that's why they're interested in it. And so, I think we had to make Kevin and I first of all, I felt the lack that the church was missing in our first edition. When we got confronted with how central the church was in the concept- in the Chinese educators' conception of education, it all snapped for me and Kevin and we mm-hmm. realized that we really have to address the role of the church. So you can say that was the second thing if there was, you know, liberal arts of um, language needed some expansion. And then there was the role of the church and our confrontation that we're not talking so much about just Western culture, but the culture of the church. I think the third thing was, for me, a recognition that we didn't do a very good job of talking about virtue in the first edition. And part of that, to be frank, was I felt a little bit of ambivalence uh, when I first came into Christian classical education 17 years ago, when I heard people talk about virtue, because it they tended to talk about it as something other than growth in Christ and Mm. um, as though there was, you know, kind of Christian maturity um, on one hand. And then there was also these things called the virtues that we needed to attend to that we get from Greece and Rome. Mm. And I didn't feel really clear about what the relationship of these two things, how they related to each other. So I needed to spend a good bit more time thinking through that and working that out and kind of, looking back through Christian history. And what I did, you know, I, I became very impressed by the fact that the way Christians talk about virtue is very biblical. it's not, we're not talking here about works righteousness or, you know, working your way to God or anything like that. What we're right. talking about is working out your salvation as God works in you. And I think it's sanctification is what's going on with this. And we've seen the development of how the Christians... Redeemed sort of the virtue tradition it was very important for me, and I felt like we needed to reevaluate how we talked about. So those are the big three things I think um, that I felt like needed us that needed to be addressed in the second edition. Yeah,
0: that's huge, and I know that Classical Academic Press is saying that you guys increased the volume of the book by about, what they say, forty percent. So the question that we've been asked by some of our listeners is if they already own the previous version, you know, should they go buy the new one? And I, I mean, I pretty much already have been saying yes, just because you, this summer had sent me the section on virtue and I had read that and amazing Robbie. I truly. Thanks for I mean, I just told them, you know, you're, you're going to miss out on some really good stuff if you're only reading the first edition, but how are you answering that question when people come to you and say, but I already own the other one.
2: (laughs) I'm not quite sure. There was one criticism of the first book that I do think we tried to address. And that was that some people felt like it wasn't clear. It was hard to understand. I'm not positive whether this will be easier or harder to understand. I'm not actually totally sure. But one thing that made the first edition hard to understand is we equivocated at some things. And in the second edition, we just decided that we were going to say what we really think on some of this stuff. I knew it. (laughs) 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 Right. So because of that, I think sometimes it is a little more clear. Uh, And some things that we didn't put a stake in the ground on, we did in the second edition. So some people may not like the second edition as much, but I think... Some people that were like, I, I liked the first edition, but I felt like there's something that didn't make sense. They might find that questions that were left unanswered in the first edition are now answered in the second edition. Hmm. I don't know if that'll happen for everybody or not, but that might be one reason. There are other people that I think really liked the book, um, primarily because it talked about poetic knowledge and moral formation in the younger years through wonder, mm-hmm. piety, gymnastic, and music. While there's not a lot added on to that section at the beginning, there is a little bit added on to the end about the relationship between the common arts, wonder, uh, festival, embodied life that I think does relate to that stuff about gymnastic and music. So I don't know. I think there's probably some of the things that were added maybe on the more... I don't know. Uh, I was going to say in, <laughs> uh, intense side, but there's uh, there maybe there's something for everybody. I'm not quite sure.
1: Can can I give an opinion?
2: <laughs> yes, love it. Love
1: me. <laughs> well, I will say that the very first time I read this book, and then I've dipped back into it a couple of times since then for various projects. I read it with Dr. Perrin in a class. Actually, Misty, you were in that class yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found it. Not a hard read, but a challenging read. And so like, you know, I'm the everyman here and (laughs) it was a little bit of a challenging read for me. Um, This time I was sitting there the other day reading through the manuscript that they had sent us. And I was like, this just seems easier. So. It's either easier to read or I've, I've gotten better as a reader, which you've been taking your fish oil. <laughs> you know, I, would, I would like to think that I've gotten better as a reader in the past three years. I think it's been like three years since we took that class, right? Missy? Yeah, I think so. Because of all the hard stuff uh, the girls make me read.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I've I've found it easier to read. Yeah, this is so. bad news, Pam. It's them, not you. It's them, not me. <laughs> Oh darn it.
2: Oh, thank you. that's that is a good report. Thank you, Pamela. I'm so glad you said that. So. Yeah, I I think we did strive for a little bit greater clarity in the second edition.
3: Yeah, I think you succeeded. I really do. Yeah, I do too. I think so. And there were sections where I thought, ooh, that was brave. I love it. Yes.
2: <laughs> I hope other people do, but it's okay if they don't. I'm glad you like it. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, if people aren't criticizing, then you're just not doing your job right. So Mm.
3: (laughs) it's going to provoke interesting conversations, right? Dialogue.
2: That's right. I'd be curious. Where do you feel like uh, it might provoke an interesting conversation?
0: Mm. Misty. Oh,
3: well, the part I thought I was reading the footnotes tying paideia and all of that to baptismal vows in, in infant baptism, so. I thought that was fascinating and a a great, valid connection, but just one that not everyone's going to relate to or agree with.
2: Yeah, I can see that too. And I think there is actually a little bit more interaction with different traditions in this book, different Christian traditions, but in a way that I I think I've learned something from doing so and that I think kind of respects a a still general trunk of historic Christian orthodoxy. So Mm -hmm. that's a very good point, Misty. I think you're right.
0: This is not what this episode is about, but I was excited to see you tie Paideia to the Hebrew tradition in the Shema because we've encountered so many people drawing that false distinction between Greek education and Hebrew education and, right. you know, he, Hebrew good, Greek bad. Right. Which, you know, <laughs> we, anyway, I mean, we completely agree that Paideia is evoking Deuteronomy in every way. When, when Paul, yeah, when, in Ephesians, when Paul's using the word paideia in regard to childhood education. But um, we were so excited to see you say that, because now we have a source. (laughs) (laughs)
2: It's
0: not just us. (laughs) It's not just
2: us. I know exactly what you mean. (laughs)
0: um, Well, um, we were hoping that for today, and I already told you this before we really started recording, and we want to have you back on, like, just all the time because there's <laughs> so much good stuff. I think Robbie yep. would make yep. a great A do sister, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to buy him a wig. Um, <laughs> but um, Yes, but we wanted to dig in today to more of the curriculum section. So I thought before we really dug in, though, we would have you briefly define liberal arts, servile arts, and fine arts, just so we as we start using those words, people who are listening that haven't read the book aren't lost on what we're talking about.
2: Sure. I suppose the easiest one to define is the servile arts. I like to talk about them as the arts of service. Mm -hmm. And another way, they're often sometimes called the common arts. And I think about that as the arts that build up the community or that serve the community. So Hugh of St. Victor talks about the common arts or the mechanical art, as he also calls them, as things like architecture, medicine, agriculture, defense, commerce. He even, I think, says theater is one of them, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, okay. So uh, he has seven common arts, which accompany the seven liberal arts. And they seem to be the kinds of arts that are ordained to the, the needs of the body. Hmm. So one of the things that I like about thinking about the common arts is that it, it is, in a way, technology, if you thought about how much of the American Economy is devoted to things like agriculture and food preparation, commerce, you know, the defense mm. industry, entertainment. You basically got 70, 80% of American GDP after mm. you all this. But when you start looking at the way the medievals thought about the common arts, it was different than the way we think about modern technology, much more along the warp and roof of nature. So that's the common arts. And then the liberal arts. Joseph Pieper says, form the articulation of of a joint with the common arts. And I think what he means by that is kind of like we're both body and soul. There are needs that the body has, but there's also um, the faculties of the soul and ways that the soul can grow. So the liberal arts are devoted to this kind of growth in the soul, growth in the understanding, and oriented towards wisdom. If both common arts or liberal arts are oriented towards the production of something, the liberal arts are oriented towards the production of knowledge and understanding and wisdom, and while the mm-hmm. common arts are oriented towards the production of goods and services. So the liberal arts, the arts of language and the arts of mathematics help people learn how to think and to see things more clearly, mm-hmm. but they're both necessary, the common arts and the liberal arts. You know, I think Kevin has been the real champion of the fine arts throughout our time of um, fighting hmm. together. And he he likes to talk about them as the arts of the beautiful. The arts of the beautiful perfect the common arts. Um, and uh, the liberal arts uh, inform the common arts as well, thinking about if you're going to do architecture, how you need geometry to do architecture. And yet, on the other hand, when you're building a building, it's not just geometry that you want, but you also want it to be beautiful, and you, your attention to beauty will come through the fine arts. So um, there's a way that all of these kind of mutually influence each other, the common arts, the fine arts, the arts the be beautiful, and the liberal arts. And I think even though the liberal arts, it's proper for them kind of to be the focus of a lot of education in the years that we're talking about with the students, we want to give them a trajectory for the common arts and fine arts as well.
3: I was just curious as I was reading that section on fine arts, if you know, that distinction as a third category of arts has always been, has it always been considered a separate thing? Because I've heard you know, liberal arts before and servile arts before, but the drawing the, the fine arts out as a separate category was new to me. Yeah, that's a good point. No, I don't
2: know that it's always been there. When I was working on, I think I've told you before that I've been working on a a book called New Natural Philosophy. And I started to track down the common arts pretty seriously for this book. But Hmm. um, around that time, I was very curious about the fine arts as well. And so I think it's um, around 300 to 500 AD when there are some arguments about the relationship of the fine arts to the common arts and the liberal arts that I thought were really quite interesting. Okay. Listen to this. This, this So the, the guy that I found, he seems to be a big deal um, in, in art history. The guy's name is Tartarkowitz to And he's got some big magnum opuses, but in a journal article, classification of arts in antiquity, he said the ancient divisions of arts they've all been different so for one the sophists had the useful versus the pleasurable arts hmm. plato had the productive versus imitative arts aristotle art completing versus imitating nature galen and seneca are the liberal versus the vulgar or common arts quintilian theoretical versus practical or poetic hmm. cicero as major versus mean or minor arts cicero b speaking versus mute arts and oh my goodness, this is kind of embarrassing. Now that I get to the end of this, I realize that this isn't actually the the (laughs) guy um, that that talks about the fine
0: arts.
2: (laughs) All of those are the the arts. All of those were um, different ways of thinking about the arts. So, I mean, I guess the sophists are the ones with the useful versus the pleasurable arts. Then it's right around here that, yeah, there is a, a kind of a controversy about whether the fine arts fall under philosophy or whether the fine arts are kind of something in and of themselves. It's mm-hmm. it's around 300 to 500 AD. And I, I forget the thinker's name, but it starts with a P. So, and I'm not an expert on the role of the fine arts that I usually leave to Kevin. So, but, but there you go. That's, that's my, that's what I know about it.
0: That's interesting though. I mean, just even seeing how different people were trying to pin down these divisions and it wasn't just one set thing throughout all of history and, I remember when we were doing our, we did a couple episodes on Sayer's essay on the Trivium, like her lost tools of learning thing. And um, one of the things we were talking about was going back to how, you know, up until a certain point, there weren't even just seven liberal arts. There were other things that some people thought maybe were liberal arts or whatever. And so it's interesting to see how we think of things as being the way they are now as having maybe always been that way, but that's not really How it went down.
2: That's exactly right. Okay, so I found, by the way, the fellow's name. The guy's name was Philostratus. At the end of classical antiquity, Philostratus appreciated the relationship between the fine arts and philosophy. When he classified sculpture and painting not merely as arts, but as a kind of wisdom. Mm. So, yeah. So I thought this was very interesting to me. That's from our new natural philosophy book. But I think the other thing that you saw is in the... 1800s, a renewed interest in art and how art kind of functions as a way of insight. And I think for, at least for Kevin, he's been influenced by Etienne Gilson, um, who wrote a book mm. called The Arts of the Beautiful. And so I think he's kind of taking Gilson's approach when he mm. writes, when Kevin thinks about this.
3: Well, I'm not sure if this is a real parallel or not, but it was interesting to me how, like there if there are three... In a way, they almost seem to go along with, you know, true, good, and beautiful. Right. Hmm.
2: Right. Hmm. They do seem to do that. And I think that's actually part of what's happening in the 1800s. So <laughs> I don't know if, if you guys have ever come across this, but you guys, have you heard of Alistair McGrath? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Alistair McGrath a real smart guy. He's, a, you know, one of the Britain's leading evangelical theologians, teaches at Oxford. He's a PhD in theology from, I think, Cambridge but he has a PhD in biophysics from Oxford. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Uh, he's a very, very smart guy, and uh, he writes on all kinds of stuff, but among them science and Christianity. So he had, a, he had a big project, which is, in some ways, the parallel of Christian classical education for the university system. And he wrote a book called The Open Secret. In that book, one of the things he said is that goodness, truth, and beauty hadn't been really talked about as a triad until the 1800s. Um, and it was the Romantics that identified this triad as the Platonic triad, goodness, truth, and beauty.
0: Hmm.
2: Alistair McGrath is not a scholar. I would probably ever disagree. With. Yeah. He's one of those like mega scholars, like a Charles Taylor, you know? So hmm. if he, if he's, I'm sure he's, what he's saying is accurate. If you track down Jules Gilson, Gilson, you know, this is the controversy about the transcendentals, that I think is quite interesting, you know, Thomas only talks about being, unity, goodness, and truth as the four transcendentals. So where is it that we get beauty, this beauty as a transcendental from? Hmm. Again, Alice McGrath's argument is that the 1800s, but um, Gilson says, actually, it's still implicit in Thomas's argument. And Gilson's also one of those great scholars. So, I mean, part of the question is, is beauty a neglected transcendental that was always kind of latent within the tradition? And I think exactly what you're saying is what Kevin and I are trying to appropriate that the answer is yes, Hmm. that goodness, truth, and beauty, even though they don't really come to the fore until the romantic period, that what these scholars are doing is recognizing something that was kind of lying latent within the tradition. So, Hmm. but it's a very good point. I mean, I think that's the reason why, We've heard about the liberal arts and the common arts, but we don't, haven't necessarily heard about the fine arts as, you know, part of this triad. Mm-hmm. So I think this is is something that I guess you could say borrowing somewhat from Jules And I think people, I think Piper is doing this too. You know, have you, I don't know if you guys have read Only the Lover Sings.
0: I have that sitting mm-hmm. on I my have a yep. not On my it shelf. <laughs> Yeah. I so. bought it because you mentioned it last time,
2: Robbie. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how about that? So, next time we talk, you'll have the flame of <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Um, well, Only the Lover Sings is also talking about how, you know, kind of the liberal arts are perfected in the fine arts. Really, really neat book, but it's hmm. all about the insights of the fine arts. So, beauty, you can say. Hmm. Yeah. That's exciting. Interesting. So next time, next time, if you want to get a real good answer to your question, you got to have Kevin on the show.
0: Okay. We actually have that on our (laughs) list. Good. I I mean, having Kevin on the show is on our list of things to do. Um, (laughs) um, So in your liberal arts section, you start talking about festival, which was fun for us because we're actually, all three of us are reading in tune with the world right now.
2: Oh, great.
0: Because we're going to frame our annual Christmas episode around that book this year. So that's coming up a couple of weeks after this episode, I guess. So my question to you about that was, you, so you, I think it, I did write down my page number. So on page 248, you said, Leisure or the true scolet required for the liberal arts depends upon one's capacity for the celebration of a festival. And then you add a Nietzsche quote, which I love, which was, which he said, the trick is not to arrange a festival, but to find people who can enjoy it. Is it okay (laughs) to like a Nietzsche Um, quote? (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was great. (laughs) Um, So uh, first of all, before we really get into talking about this, I wanted to ask, do you have a brief way of describing what people means by festival? Because I know not everybody who's listening has read that book.
2: Wow. I mean, I, I think in some ways it's kind of an, an affirmation of a cosmic reality. Hmm. So, you know, one that involves our whole our whole person, our whole selves in community with other people and kind of instantiating what we've just been talking about, goodness, truth, and beauty by, you know, and producing it, you know, kind of a, an expression of the the common arts, fine arts, and liberal arts coming together.
0: Okay. I mean, I know, I know he ties it to worship, but he doesn't use the words interchangeably. Peeper, I mean, ties festival to worship, but it's not, maybe it resolves itself in worship, but it, I, I'm still, I mean, one of the reasons why I asked was personal. <laughs> I feel like as I'm reading it, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around because, I mean, you know, for me, I think festival and I think like it's a, it's a thing you go to and there's like people dressed up as they're in Shakespeare's time or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. <laughs> I really was trying to extract myself from things I have gone to that are called festivals and figure out what Peeper's really talking about. And that was hard for me when it reading his book.
2: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I, I mean, I do think it's related to worship, but I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think it reduces to worship in the way we think of it, like in terms of the liturgy or the worship service. I mean that for me, the approach is very helpful to think about a rock concert or to think about you know a football game, uh, because I think these are probably closer to what festival felt like in the ancient world. Hmm. As soon as you do that, though, you recognize how compromised these festivals these modern festivals are. That That's where I think the question lies is maybe if at a school or a church community that you participated in, you felt like there was some kind of uh, extraordinary performance or pageant there, that gets at a direction of of redemption for the experience that somebody might feel at a rock concert or a football game. Hmm. What if these things were elevated in a different sense? you know one thing that we've done at our school is we've had we've brought back field day (laughs) i don't know if you ever you guys ever had this field day growing up in high school or middle school or elementary school but you know the day you just say let's go outside and play games all day one of the things that we do on that day is we have a parade and uh, we've got a house system at our school and in the parade each of the houses walks by and i have to admit like i've I get kind of excited when the house of Wittenberg walks by and they have a picture of Luther and the house of Alexandria walked by. And who did they have? Did they have a picture of Athanasius? I can't remember hmm. who they had a portrait of. And then they had all kinds of, you know, kind of fun decorations and costumes and things. And it's it's like they had turned... I I think parades are generally pretty boring, but this parade wasn't for me because it actually was taking things that I care about and I'm interested in, and the kids had kind of expressed enough interest in artistry and the whole thing to make it cool. You know, then we had chariot races and things like that. I, I think for me, it actually kind of captures a vision of people having fun in community in a way that honors the right things, which is holistic. Maybe what a parade might have been 50 or 100 years ago, but probably isn't today anymore.
3: It's like the ability to play with the knowledge and the loves that they're growing. Yeah. Actually, listening even just to that little description,
0: I'm thinking of how far we have to go (laughs) in our capacity. Because you were talking about capacity for festival and... I mean, that's an interesting thing. I I Actually, I wrote down in my questions for you, one of them was, how do you increase your capacity for festivals? Or or like, I know, I'm sorry, we saved all these hard questions. (laughs) 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 One after another. Um, Or, you know, or how do you help a child increase their capacity for... I mean, lots of times I feel like we actually ruin children. They're probably born with a capacity for festival in many ways that we just kind of stomp on. But I don't know, because I... Something about the way that you phrased it actually made me think about one time when I realized that I was so busy and stressed out, I couldn't read poetry because there was just this quietness of heart that was required for me to even have the patience to read it that was not existent in that moment. When reading some of the stuff about festival, I was feeling kind of the same way that there's so much busyness and there's so much that how could we have room for a festival? (laughs) Nobody has time for a festival, you know, Um, which is really sad, but I did think that.
2: Right. I mean, and it's why you guys exist, the Skolle sisters, right? To develop, you know, how do you calm the heart? How do you develop leisure um, where leisure isn't merely free time? Hmm. You know, it's a, a capacity to enjoy something beyond us. I, I, so I think all of these things, part of it is, yeah, stopping the frenetic culture that we have as a real help for me. Uh, funny enough, I don't actually teach from history I mean, in a real particular way. I try to do some things with the students, but um, I participate in it myself. Uh, when I go, i drawing trees or drawing uh, a lake or something like that. I just, <laughs> there's a way that it allows me to, it reorders my soul.
0: Hmm. I could see that. So what's the connection between the liberal arts and festivity? I mean, I feel like you're drawing a connection in that passage.
2: Yeah, well, I think the idea is contemplation. You know, the notion of liberal art, as seeds, uh, in addition to tools, or not merely tools, but the seeds, allowing reality to break through to us in a way that actually inspires us or captivates us. That's what I think the relationship is. You don't get wonder without some kind of transcendence, something beyond us. And that's what I think festival is trying to instantiate. That's why a rock concert is always unsatisfying because there's nothing really mysterious at the end of those things. You know, you kind of know it's all rigged. It's all just smoke and mirrors. But when you're actually involved in something mysterious that you really believe is true and mysterious... That's captivating, you know, and you'll think about that for days. When you start to see ordinary reality like that, for example, something as simple as triangular numbers, you know, when you start to ask the question, where did the order in this falling body come from? Why is it that birds migrate? And you start to actually experience that as, as mysterious. I think that's where you start to, it becomes a liberal art and not merely kind of a technology. Hmm. You know, when words become powerful and they evoke layers of insight to you, that's when I think grammar becomes a liberal art. When you can see that poetry moves you and why is it that some words have the power to move and others don't, that that becomes mysterious. I think that's when things move to festival, to leisure, to to liberal art, not merely a useful thing. Hmm.
1: Pam, are you still here? I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> I, I, have, I have thoughts. I'm just not sure if they're appropriate here for our other episode. <laughs> you, can, you can be inappropriate. You- <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I have an answer to the festival question. Oh, okay. Go for it. It comes from feast. So you think about the idea of a feast and within the church calendar, we have feast days. There are feast days and then there's ordinary time. And so the whole idea of festival is you know, and you tie this to worship, it's celebrating all of these these feasts. it's feasting, and not just necessarily you know gorging yourself on food, but the idea you know where do we find these festivals we find them in in the feast days of the church
2: yeah i, I mean I think absolutely that's that's part of uh that's part of what I think has been lost, right. And that becomes a difficult thing to you know, that becomes something that I think some some Christians don't get to appreciate if their church tradition doesn't doesn't participate right. in those yeah. feast days and festival days. But I think it's at least important that we recognize this is what they were after and this is this is what was great about some of that stuff. <laughs> when we celebrate Christians that have gone before us, you know, what what's wrong with that? You know, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. The festivals of the church are, are are certainly the pattern for this, I think in Pieper's mind. But but of course he's a philosopher, not a he he doesn't want to act as a theologian, so he doesn't want to get into mm.
1: controversy. Right.
2: But no, that's absolutely right, Pam.
1: Yeah, and I mean we do. We do still celebrate these church festivals as part of this process. You know, if you look at Christmas, it's been secularized and it's been removed in a lot of ways by a lot of people from the great Christian festival Mm -hmm. that it is, but we as Christians still celebrate it as a Christian festival.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right.
1: I mean, even for us coming up next week, I mean, we're recording this in October, you know, looking at Halloween for us, it is all Hallow's Eve. It's all, you know what it's all saints day. So yeah, you know, we will have bottoms in the church on (laughs) November 1st. That's why we get to play and collect candy and do things like that on October 31st. So you have trouble sitting down on November 1st? No, just because because we're celebrating. (laughs) It's our festival. (laughs) I was was just kidding. (laughs) And yes, it's been been taken and secularized. Yes. but, But that's where it came from. And so, you know, my kids know that you don't get one without the other. Yeah.
2: I love All Hallows Eve, you know, and I think it's a, it's a neat thing to, to think about the All Saints Day and the night before All Saints Day. And uh, I try to, <laughs> different people have different opinions on this, and so I don't try to be too dogmatic about it, but, you know, we trick-or-treat. And, um, and when my kids <laughs> when my kids go around, I try to get them to say, you know, Happy All Hallows Eve.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, There's
1: nothing weird about that at all. <laughs> you're not standing out, not one little bit. It's
2: just funny enough that nobody really knows what's going on. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. Oh. Because I think you're absolutely right. I think the easiest festivals for us to regain are Christmas, Easter, and All Hallows Eve. And And here's the thing that's really scary to me though, is that it's hard for me to have festivity on Christmas or Easter, especially easter for for example, like I really have to prepare I think to celebrate have a festive heart hmm. what I, what I don't mean by that is it's not hard necessarily to have fun it's hard to be an affirmation of a cosmic the cosmic reality of the risen Christ on on Easter and to just kind of think about how. All of the aspects of the day are participating in this cosmic reality. How does our, the rest of our year, how do other things in our lives emanate from this affirmation of that reality, that festival? Mm. It's even difficult for me. I, I'm condemned by Nietzsche in that sense. Mm. difficult for me to celebrate the festival of Easter with a uh, to keep the feast, if you will, in my heart.
0: Huh. That kind of reminded me of um, Dickens where he talks about keeping Christmas. <laughs> uh, Misty loves this book so much. Um, but anyway, and, and even though some people don't like Victorian novels in Christmas Carol, where he says, you know, I will keep absolutely. Christmas in my heart anyway. No, you're absolutely right. Sound like a quote.
2: I mean, that, in fact, that was uh, something that we did with the Chinese educators, you know, because they don't celebrate Christmas. They don't exactly know what to do with Christmas. And so hmm. we uh, we watched uh, Christmas Carol with them just to kind of give them a sense of, you know, what are some ways that will help prepare you to celebrate the festival of Christmas? Hmm. And, th- and that's, again, part of the liberal art, you know, liberal art of literature grammar is, in that sense, how it ties to festival.
0: So you're saying that Charles Dick I just, I just <laughs> didn't quote you on this. So Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol, well, I mean, you watched it, but anyway,
3: could prepare you to celebrate Christmas. Uh, Misty, are you listening to this? (laughs) Well, Angelina's doing three days on it, so I fully expect to be beaten over the head.
1: Sorry,
0: (laughs) Robbie, there's a long-standing axe I have to grind here.
1: And I was just sitting here thinking that, you know, maybe Robbie should have shown Charlie Brown Christmas. Yeah, there you go. I would have done a better job.
2: We actually showed Charlie Brown Thanksgiving.
3: Did you (laughs) really? But I think this can easily tie back to then the servile or the common arts, because if there is a thing that keeps moms from having festivity, it's the fact that when you say festivity, we just think of the food and the dishes and the mess.
2: Exactly.
3: That is true. But okay. So this is one of the things I loved about this book was
1: he talks about St. Benedict's rule and the um, work and pray. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, this is where the moms need to realize that the work they're doing and preparing for this, these festivals, this is part of it. This is just as valid as, you know, it's not like we're doing all this work to lead up to, to do this big festival. And so therefore, You know, the festivals, what the important part is, the important part, that's the end, right? Mm -hmm. But really this work that we're doing lead up, leading up to it, it's, it's part of the whole It's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's part of it. Yeah. You know, I wasn't even thinking, Pam, that
0: part of what I perceive in myself to be a lack of capacity for festival is actually my desire to like get out of that work, I think. Mm. I'm like, why can't I afford a caterer, (laughs) you know,
1: (laughs) (laughs) but, but it's all, you know, you're, you're offering it all up together, the festivity and the work leading up to the festival. Yeah. You know, I loved it. You were talking about, you know, the Christian monastic tradition work was never as skewed as it was by the Greek philosophers and nobility. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it's Cindy Rollins who often says, you know, Homeschool moms are the new leisure class in that we have the you know, we're the ones with the the means to reclaim this whole idea of scholar, um, yeah. except mm. for the dishes. <laughs> but you know, if if we if we stop looking at to the Greeks as the model and they exactly. start looking to the monasteries, then uh, it all yeah. kind of comes
3: together. Yeah. Mm. Wow. And we still have to do the dishes, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that connection in this section where it really is the Christian redemption of the servile arts, where it's not, okay, just do minimize those as much as possible or offload them onto other people who are less important than you so that you can have time to do the liberal arts. Right. And that in reclaiming the liberal arts or scolae, we don't have to minimize or downplay or scorn the servile arts that, they can go together, hand in hand, and I thought that the mm. section really brought that out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's, a,
2: that's a great point, and I think it's something that I need to be confronted with, you know, constantly, because I, I think in my own nature I tend to live in my head and you know deny embodiment, of the importance of daily activities. But but you know, I mean, I think we're going to be resurrected bodies, <laughs> so, right? Why why is it that we so easily get caught up in our heads. I do think there that is, it's part of Cartesian dualism inheritance that we get where academia is just focused on the head. Right. I think that that's the real thing.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should read your gymnastics chapter again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know.
1: So
0: um, I'm... I mean, I, I kind of wanted to ask a question about classical schools just out of curiosity, because I mean, I think for a lot of our listeners, we don't really have experience with schools, right? So we're homeschoolers and that's what we do, but I'm wondering like, as, okay. So as homeschoolers, the servile arts are kind of woven into the day, you know, like kids get jobs, they start businesses, they do chores, they help out what, like, I feel like it's just kind of embedded in living life together as a family, but do classical schools somehow incorporate servile arts, or is that just considered something that happens outside of school time?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Part of what I realized in working on that book that I mentioned, "A New Natural Philosophy," uh, with Robbie Andres and Chris Hall, is that a science teacher is actually expected to do two things at least. And I always thought that what I was doing as a science teacher was kind of teaching truth. And maybe if I put it moved it towards natural philosophy, the pursuit of wisdom through understanding of nature, hmm. something like that. But over the past five or seven years, I've started to realize that actually it's not even so much truth and wisdom that people expect, you know, me to be helping their kids learn. But it's more like how to build, you know, rocket ships and how to C D players work and <laughs> stuff like that. Huh. That it's really technology that They're interested in, they they kind of expect me to be teaching. And once I started to recognize these are two separate tasks, that one task is kind of the pursuit of wisdom, the other task is actually a based form of the common arts, um, what could be a good thing, but is often just understood as kind of material control. Once I eased out those two different trajectories, then it was very helpful for me to say, okay, well, what we need to do then in the part of the class. The physics, biology, chemistry classes that we teach that are expected to be technologically oriented, how do we resituate those within the common arts? So, for example, our science faculty a couple weeks ago, we made lie. So, you know, it's very easy to do. I don't know if anybody, any of you ladies have done it, but, uh, you know, we went over to somebody's house and we took a bunch of old wood ash that um, had been burned in their fire and we followed the process for making why for uh you know thousands of years how people make mm-hmm. soap uh out of wine now we're not quite sure yet how to use this in the chemistry class <laughs> um, <laughs> but we know that mm-hmm. kids would probably get into this would um, know, be able to make your own chemicals so i think one of the things that we're trying to do is to is to ask the question, how can we resituate um, the common arts part of our science, natural science classes within the historical trajectory of the common arts? So one of the things that I've been trying to do in my physics class is build a pendulum clock. Now I've got the plan. That kind of thing would fall perfectly within what I teach my 11th graders. So some, some of the things that you guys are, I mean, I could be jealous of just the fact that the kids get to be around the parents all day as the parents kind of pass along the arts of the household, that is just part of if you had a little bit more time with the kids at home. I, mean, I guess what work we're doing now is how to kind of on the curricular level integrate that. I think we see it as having a very large role in kindergarten through sixth grade. That whole pursuit of wisdom, demonstrable knowledge of causes probably isn't going to happen for kids in 12th grade. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. I had never made the connection between the servile arts and science before. But especially your connection with physics, I thought, oh, that makes perfect sense. I just had never considered that before. So this book that you're working on, then um we, we get to read this sometime, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, and actually the first chapter is an appendix in uh liberal arts tradition. So No. In a liberal arts tradition called A New Natural Philosophy. I and mean, get it kind of lays out the logic of the book. The book is supposed to come out in December of next year. Cap's going to do it. And I'm supposed to give them the final draft in a couple of weeks. It's co-authored with me um, and then a, a kindergarten through sixth grade teacher that was up in Virginia who's really a specialist in common arts and trying to bring that, those ideas into, embody them in the classroom at his the school he was teaching at. The other teacher is uh, Robbie, That Robbie Andrews, and the biology teacher that was reading. Uh,
0: oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, that's exciting. So we really are going to have you on the show again because <laughs> we'll have to talk to you about that <laughs> when it comes out. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, we had all of these amazing plans to talk to you about the faculty of friends portion, but we are totally running out of time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm so long-winded. I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> no,
0: don't apologize. This has been wonderful. But um, ladies, I wanted to give you a last chance to ask a final question if you have anything on your mind. No, I guess it was a great conversation. Speak now or forever hold your peace.
1: <laughs> well, since you won't let us open up that last whole section, I guess we're just not going to say anything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? You're punishing me? No, I really, I really do. Wanting to have you back on to talk about this. But I, I feel like that actually could turn into a whole separate episode because it totally could Yeah, be. totally could Yeah, be. that so, was
2: actually, a, that's been a part that has had implications for not just, you know, us in our school and me, but other, <laughs> other, other schools. It's a game changer when you start to think about that stuff.
0: Ravi, we really would like to have you back on because there's so much to talk to you about. We're so excited about your book, and we thank Thank you you. for coming on today. And
2: well, great! I'd be delighted to come back on. So, whenever you guys are ready, great. Let me know.
3: All right, awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank
2: you, thank you guys for always casting vision and sharing the good words.
0: That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the Sisterhood of the Podcast. As always, we appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast and share the episodes with your friends. Want to help support the podcast? Becoming a paid Sistership member is the best way to do this and comes with a variety of benefits. The basic plan is only $3 a month and gives you access to tons of extra recordings, including the eight minutes I cut from today's conversation with Robbie. Go to scalaysisters.com sistership to sign up. Don't forget to download your free school A sheet from our show notes at schoolasisterscom ss62. Next episode, Misty and I discuss the four different kinds of reading. This comes from Sertelange's book, The Intellectual Life, and expands a bit on some of what we talked about in episode 61, which was the Humble Pie episode. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you need to run alone, so open up your eyes and look around you find your sisters. I, I, I have to edit because I say embarrassing things in every episode.
1: So. How am I supposed
3: to buy books if I can't have a
1: browser open? You can have
3: one tab open to Amazon at all times. I very much appreciated the alliteration.
0: Oh my gosh.
3: Misty. Misty can't do anything. <laughs> Alliteration is her
1: love language. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> that is true. Some people like presents. Misty's like just alliterate. Um, okay. <laughs> so <laughs>